Welcome to this edition of When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine, a discussion of sustainable living and what that means to you and me. I'm Jay Warmke. And I'm Annie Warmke. Yes, you are indeed. And today we're going to talk about agrarian land trusts or, and this is really cute, you say potato, <laughs> I say for condo. You know, well, anyway, that, that's, that, that's a real stretch. That, that is it, okay, it's potato. So, yeah, I know. But anyway, we're joined by Ian McSweeney, if he's still here after, after, <laughs> after listening. After that, Ian, the, don't the, run. Don't yeah. run, please. And, and Ian is the founder of Farmland Consulting and... Uh, that supports communities through farmland preservation and also is the leader, uh, the head guru, I guess, of Agrarian Trust as I guess your official title is organize, Organizational Director. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, doke. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Ian, and, and tell a little bit about Agrarian Trust because I think that's where we're going to be focusing our discussion today. Sounds great. So thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I'm Ian McSweeney. I live in southern New Hampshire, have a small farm. Uh, my wife and I share out with farmer in exchange for the ability to get food out our door, the ability to uh, have our kids go and uh, grow up on a farm and bother farmer, and yet uh, we are not spending our days doing that. Um, I spend my days focused on this work with Agrarian Trust and farmland consulting, as mentioned, and, and really all this work is to address uh, ownership, tenure, and equity in farmland. So Agrarian Trust is a national land trust with a goal of supporting next generation farmers, and we do that through addressing ownership, equity, and tenure. Uh, some of that addressing is raising the issue. The issue being uh, farmland owners are over 64 years old nationally on average, meaning that the land, the farmland they own is in transition. Uh, they are uh, exiting farming, uh, they are exiting farmland ownership, they are passing on, and with that, uh, it is anticipated that up to 400 million acres of farmland in the U.S. will change hands this decade and next. Uh, so that uh, amount of farmland is is enormous, and and what will happen to that land? Who will who will farm that land? Who will own that land? Who will have tenure on that land? And how will equity be addressed? Are central questions for our food system, for the health of our soils and our planet, uh, and for any type of uh, land justice to occur. So, you know, we raise the issue around that transition of farmland. We support stakeholders, uh, other organizations doing this work. We incubate and initiate and develop uh, different uh, initiatives like faith lands that is the intersection of faith communities and their ownership with land and their questions around future uses and stewardship of that land. Um, and, and we also uh, kind of manifest a model for what we see as a solution, uh, you know, one solution in what we hope are thousands of solutions, but right now one solution um, uh, among very few solutions that exist for how to address farmland ownership, farmland tenure, and farmland equity that value and prioritize next generation farmers. So, so, so how, so just to interrupt in that before, ways. Sure, please. 
Yeah, well, before we move, drill down, as they say, uh, I'm just wondering, how did you get to the point where you saw this as important and it became your work? Because I don't think you were doing this work early in your career, were you? No, no. Well, um, yes and no. So I've, um, I have long felt that we are disconnected from the land. Uh, we as people, we as communities, and that with that, uh, we see many uh, societal and cultural problems uh, manifest. So uh, the foundation that has to be addressed is how we are reconnecting with land as individuals and as communities. So that's that's been my belief throughout my life. And I've had a career in social work uh, to try to reconnect people from the human side uh, with each other and with the land. Uh, much of that was environmental uh, immersion focused work. Um, had a career in real estate and land use planning uh, focused on bringing together farmers, conservationists, developers, and uh, municipal planning and approval process to create kind of planned use neighborhoods that, that created active farming and protected conservation land in a human-built neighborhood environment. Uh, and, and then had a career running a private foundation uh, that supported land conservation and farmland conservation work. So through all of those, primarily the real estate and the uh, foundation work, I came in contact with a lot of organizations, nonprofits, uh, governmental organizations, community groups, all with interest in addressing farmland ownership and tenure realities, either you know who and how to own land or who and how to make access available to farmland. And, and so saw what was working uh, in projects that I was part of uh, and what was not working. And, and most of this was in New England. Some of this was across the country. But through this work uh, running the foundation and in real estate and planning, I gained a perspective of, of kind of uh, the the needs and the unmet needs really uh, that existed uh, around farmland ownership tenure and equity and how uh, land trust model and conservation and community land trusts uh, but how they uh, are uh, somewhat addressing the needs and somewhat not at all uh, but how those structures could evolve to really uh, focus in on those direct needs around land uh, that farmers have. Well, so a lot of it was kind of through other work I, I envisioned and developed uh, what I'm doing now. It, it seems to me there are a couple of different problems here that, that I assume you're trying to address. One is, uh, as you mentioned, the aging uh, workforce within farmers and, and farm owners, where you say they're heading into retirement. How do we encourage you know, the younger, the next generation to take up the farming um, and, and avoid kind of an industrialization uh, farm model where you've got absentee owners with caretakers and or, or whatever. Or development. Yeah, and that's the second that's one the is problem. you just take that farmland and, and turn it into condos. Like I said, you know, where, where you know, often it's, it's valuable land 
or perceived to be more valuable as something other than farmland. So how yeah. does your model address those items? Yeah, completely. And, and I think just to add to that before answering, the other is, right, the you know, development for non-agricultural uses, as mentioned, but also the industrialization of agriculture, food production. Um, you know, the realities are that industrial agriculture is one of the primary, uh, you know, contributors to soil loss and surface water pollution uh, in this country. So how do we kind of not um, allow for the industrialization of agriculture in that it'll simply just use the the land and the ecosystem as as an extraction point and a and a point to dump uh, chemicals and uh, kind of waste onto to the point of, of you know degradation and complete pollution beyond the ability to use that. So so really you know all of those forces the kind of financial interests the industrial ag interests and the development non-ag interests are, are forces that are, that are coming in and acquiring farmland in this transition time and excluding young and beginning farmers more and more. And the reality is that's always been the case, but over the last several decades, um, year over year, uh, the market value of farmland continues to increase uh, every single year. The average value of farmland increases to now it's a little over $3,000 an acre nationally on average. And, and every year over the last 30 year period, farm incomes have gone down uh, across the country regionally and nationally. So, you know, a farmer's ability to afford that farmland they need is becoming more and more impossible. And, and thus these other forces, financial, industrial, ag, and kind of development non-ag uses are well capitalized and they can step in and take advantage of and, and further, you know, financialize and commoditize farmland and perpetuate the cycle. So really our solution is that uh, the land trust, the nonprofit land trust model is part of our solution. That's been something that, that uh, nonprofit land trusts have existed throughout this country for a little over a hundred years. Um, primary focus has been on protection of natural resources and open space. Much of that presently is done through conservation easements. So certain rights and property to protect that property. But really, the nonprofit land trust model allows for ownership of farmland to come into the model. And in doing that, uh, the farmland can be decommodified. You're moving it into a nonprofit structure permanently. So you're moving it out of a market based valuation system. And when you move it into that nonprofit structure, you're also moving it into a nonprofit land trust that's mission and and uh, kind of IRS uh, accreditation are based on its ability to steward that land and protect that land against adverse uses. So you're, you address the financial piece by moving it into a nonprofit and permanently prohibiting market-based sales of that in the future. And then you address that kind of protection stewardship piece in 
in the, you know, the bylaws of the organization, the lease to farmer, the status of the nonprofit as an entity um, are all working to, to support that uh, proper stewardship, proper ownership of farmland. Is there, is there a minimum amount of acreage and, and how would that work if, uh, if somebody came forward and said, I've got a farm and um, could you walk me through how this, how this would work if I decided to put it into conservation? Yeah, well, well so, you know, I touched on that kind of our work is, is looking at other land trusts and their conservation land trusts and community land trusts that exist that, and conservation land trusts work is, is that protection of natural resources and open space through conservation easements a lot of times. So a lot of that work is focused on uh, prohibiting those financial, industrial, or development type uses mentioned, which, you know, for development of land to take place, land has to be a certain number of acres, say, to be viable for development. So it, for conservation land trust, by and large, it, it creates a, a minimum size of land they want to work with if their primary goal is stopping development, say. For us, our primary goal is supporting next generation farmers and seeing viable farms. So that, that's a different goal in many ways than, than other land trusts. And, and so we, we look at that question of what is the size of land quite differently because you know, uh, a viable farm depends more on the location, the customer base, the products grown and the efficiencies of the farm say um, than it does on the acreage. Uh, so, you know, a larger, a, a, a dairy farm or livestock farm is going to require a lot more acreage to be viable than a, a diversified vegetable farm. And, and a diversified vegetable farm in a more urban market uh, can be quite small, you know, an acre or plus or minus say, and be viable as a farm business and be, you know, holding that land would have the potential to realistically support next generation farmers farming on that land. So for us, it's, it's more about what type of farm business can be viable and then what's the land base needed to support that given the location and the markets and such it has. So, so we're, for us presently, the smallest farmland we're working with is a 12 acre piece of land. The largest is uh, over 6,000 acres. And it, Okay, it well, Ian, I'm gonna interrupt you here, here real quick to uh, let people know that you're listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke, reminding <laughs> you that it is indeed the end of the world as we know it. And thank God. Thank God. So, yeah, Ian, I, I was, um, in preparing for this, I was looking through, and it seems to me part of what you're saying is, okay, we're going to take what had been individually owned properties, put them into essentially a public or nonprofit model where ownership is, is in the common, essentially, and then through the rules... Um, you know, maintain that this will be agricultural land. And, and I had been listening to a, um, 
Noam Chomsky presentation, you know, talking about uh, the charter of the forest. And, and this may sound like it's a non sequitur or whatever, but, but part of this was essentially back in, in the 1200s where, where they said, okay, all this land that was owned and, you know, was only for the king or the lords is now in common and that you could hunt and, and share this for the common good. And in the 1960s, there was always that prevailing, um, I think it was attributed to Garrett Hardin, saying that essentially the, the tragedy of the commons. So, so what I'm getting to is a lot of people will look at your movement, a lot of capitalistic economists will say, you know, the tragedy of the commons states that when nobody owns a thing, that everybody will use it to their own self-interest and that eventually destroys the thing that they claim to be sharing. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's yeah. been an argument for private ownership of public resources for a well, long, long time. That's because humans are greedy. Yeah, it does. And right. it says that once, once left to their own devices, they're going to just keep grazing as many of their own sheep on the common land until the land is destroyed. But, of course, Noam Chomsky points out that in most indigenous cultures where they do share the commons, that never happens because the people who tend to the land understand its limitations and typically look out for it more than the industrialized usage, which is basically it's now a disposable. Um, where, where did part that of, happen? Because I don't see it happening too much. Well, it, I mean, we are a capitalistic world anymore. And, and so what you're seeing, I think, is you're going against the tide of private enterprise coming in claiming they're going to maintain stewardship, but basically drain the resources and then move on. Um, do you feel like that? Do you feel like a crusader against the tide or, or have you received that criticism? Don, Don Quixote. Yeah. Well, this is the whole Robin Hood thing. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. 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 yeah com completely. So yeah. Have received that criticism have have uh, that has become kind of right an objection or a disinterest or you know kind of questioning of our work um you know that's the tragedy of the commons is one story uh eleanor ostrom uh who won a nobel prize for her work uh studied and wrote on commons that exist throughout the world and have for hundreds of years um, so, you know, there's, there's plenty of examples of where commons have worked and continue to work. We just need to be open to look more broadly than the readings we presently do, uh, collectively, um, is part of it. I, I think an, another part of it in, in a real opportunity now is that, you know, that, uh, the criticism levied on the commons uh, through uh, the tragedy of the commons, uh, all, all we have to do is look around at any aspect of our food system, agriculture, or farmland in the capitalist system we have and understand that that's really only been operating in you know, full force for uh, 100 years plus in this country. And, and we've destroyed uh, our country and the planet. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're destroying topsoil. We're, we're uh, adding sediment and pollutants to the Mississippi River to the point that it's non-navigable and it's, uh, you know, become Cancer Alley from all the runoff from farm fields. 
we've polluted the Chesapeake Bay to the point of, you know, the, it's, it, it's non-livable for most anything. We're, we're poisoning the, the surface water everywhere we go. We're draining aquifers. Yeah, but um, you know what, Ian? It doesn't matter how many times we say that. The greediness of humans seems to surpass whatever that argument is. I, I'm absolutely fascinated with the idea of what you do. And I, I'm wondering... Let's say if if we uh, if Jay and I were to talk to you about um, putting Blue Rock Station, which is the name of our farm, uh, into this project, I'm wondering over time how how does this get sustained funding wise? Because you're maybe the world falls apart and you're not there anymore, or you know what what is set up so that the farmland is protected for to yeah. say where it is. I mean financially. Right. Yeah. Well, so, so part of it, it with our model is that we feel that um, there's, a, there's an appropriate scale for things. And, and again, this, this is counter to where we are in our global capitalist market. But we feel that, you know, the scale needs to remain human and community centered. So we, we've created 12 of these agrarian commons in 10 states across the country uh, starting just last May. Um, and, and we'd continue to create more agrarian commons because that's where a farm ownership sits in the local agrarian commons it's part of. So we support and are facilitating and, and connected to these commons, but ultimately the local commons is where the property is owned and it's uh, restricted to be held in ownership. Uh, it's restricted in the amount of debt it can take on. It's restricted from being sold on the market. So it's, you know, held permanently in that local commons. And it's uh, the capital needed to bring the property into the commons is handled by the trust in fundraising up front. So it's coming into that commons without debt. And it's limited in the amount of debt. So it's carrying costs are lower. And then it is then leased out to farmer. And that local commons is collecting the lease revenue. So over time, a commons growing to hold six, eight, ten properties, the commons begins to generate enough lease revenue uh, from collecting affordable lease from farmers to sustain itself. And its only focus is sustaining itself. We set a cap on the number of farms that a commons can hold at 12. So it can't grow beyond that human scale, but it needs to grow to the point of enough farm holding that the lease and rent revenue generated can sustain that commons itself. Um, but really the commons is just the land holding vehicle. You know, it, it holds the farmland and conveys lease out to farmer who then operates their independent business that might be for profit or nonprofit or cooperative. And whether that business uh, succeeds or fails is a market and individual private farmers uh, efforts and, and kind of outcomes that determine that the land is always held in this commons, but over time the land is gonna have many different leaseholding farmers. Um, so it, it, it separates the land ownership from the farm business and it limits the land ownership capacities of what it can do. And then it entrusts that in a local commons 
who's collecting rent revenue to sustain itself. It seems, uh, I, I really, really like the idea of it. Um, it seems so sustainable and resilient as a model. But I'm wondering, you know, I'm involved in doing consulting with lots of new farmers and my primarily women, but um, what I see uh, a real issue with is there's a lot of training out there for new farmers. Uh, it's all about the business model. And so there's very little put into how to make a living. And so those are two different things. And we know this from capitalism. And I'm just wondering how you assess uh, who's going to be the leaseholder because somebody who's brand new may have done all the right paperwork, but have no real sense about how to make a living. Yeah. Well that, you know, who is going to be a leaseholder is a decision of that local commons. Um, in a few cases where kind of a, a farm is coming in to start a commons, uh, we are going to trust are more involved in that initial founding startup phase of things. So then we're involved in kind of finding a leaseholder there as well, but it's in partnership with the commons. And it's, so, so each commons determines their own kind of evaluation and what their priorities are around, you know, who those leaseholder might be who the you know priority for serving with these farm opportunities would be so it looks different from one to the next but it's kind of a local decision making process of what that is um i'm wondering who makes up the local commons yeah so so each commons um is a nonprofit entity with a board the board is one third leaseholding farmers who are on farms that are in that commons. So, you know, for an example where farm is in a commons and then there's a search for a leaseholder, that's an unfilled seat until leaseholder comes in. In in other cases, you know, farms who we're working with are mid-career farms that are coming into the commons. So their farmers are known and their leaseholders already in those commons. So one third is that farmer contingent of leaseholders who will be on the land. One third is other community members in that region of the commons. Community members looks different from one place to the next. So some are, are kind of agricultural supports, whether it's business, finance, marketing, you know, accounting, legal type, community partners who become part of the board. Some are more kind of nonprofit fundraising focused. Others are from other nonprofit or community organizations that are connected to agriculture in that region. So it differs from one to the next quite a bit, but it's decided locally by that community, by those farmers. Um, and it's really with the perspective of building that support network for the farms that are part of this, because right, you know, another reality of our capitalist system that, that we ignore and its impact around farmland is that farming has one of the highest suicide rates out of any profession in this country. Um, farming is lonely. Farming, you know, farmers need relationship and networks and support in many ways more than just that that training you described 
Okay, so, well, well, Ian, Ian, on that upbeat note, <laughs> I'm going to have to cut you off because we're running out of time. But I want to let people know that you've been listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke. We've been speaking with Ian McSweeney, who is the organizational director of Agrarian Trust and also the founder of Farmland Consulting. Uh, we want to thank him. Thank you very much, Ian. And we want to thank, thank our Emmy award-winning producer, Adam Rich. And we want to thank you for spending just a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother hopefully told you, the secret to a happy and sustainable life is... Play nice with others, clean up your own mess, and Jay, are you going to eat any vegetables this week? Only if they're from the agrarian land. Okay. Till next time. Bye-bye. You can find more information on living sustainably in our unsustainable world at BlueRockStation.com. Yeah.